Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Manny. I'm the executive director here at the Hoover History Working Group. And I'd like to welcome you to hopefully the first of many historical conversations. Um, this is a new type of event that we're hosting where uh, we will try to apply and bring history to bear on current events in a way that is a little bit less formal than our usual uh, seminars. Uh, but before I get started, I wanted to remind you uh, on March 16th, uh, we'll be hosting Roger uh, Lowenstein on Ways and Means, his new book about Lincoln, his cabinet, and the financing of the American Civil War. On April 1st, which is April Fool's Day, Alan Guelzo uh, will be joining us. And then on April 14th, uh, will be uh, Kazan Moazin uh, talking about Chinese banking. And so without further delay, since we only have about an hour, I will now hand it over to Neil Ferguson, who's the Milbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Thank you, Manny, and uh, welcome to everybody. It's Friday afternoon, uh, but there's a war uh, raging in Eastern Europe, and uh, that is the kind of thing that anybody who wants to apply history uh, must be keenly interested in. We're very fortunate to have persuaded two of the world's leading experts on the relevant history to join us. Uh, Mary Sarotti is the Kravis Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins, author of numerous books, Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall, 1989, The Struggle to Create Post-Cold War Europe, and most recently, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. If anybody uh, timed a book well, uh, likely has to be Mary's uh, decision to publish on NATO enlargement just before a war broke out on the subject of NATO enlargement. So uh, kudos to you. You probably weren't quite planning that, at least I hope you weren't. Uh, Chris Miller uh, is Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School at Tufts uh, and the author of a number of uh, very important uh, books on modern uh, Russian history, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, uh, Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, uh, both of our guests today are in a great deal of demand, and they are probably as zoomed out as any two uh, human beings uh, in the country, uh, if not the world right now. I want to thank them for uh, uh, accepting one more Zoom invitation uh, to talk to the Hoover History Working Group. Uh, I can... Uh, I can only offer you, I, I hope, somewhat more sophisticated questions than the TV networks uh, tend to go in for. Uh, I'm going to kick this off with a few uh, questions from, uh, as it were, the chair, and then uh, open it up. If you want uh, to intervene, the simplest way to get my attention is to raise uh, your hand using the reactions uh, button, like I just did. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, use the chat function if you prefer to put your thought in writing. Uh, let me start, uh, Mary, with you. There is a view that uh, is associated with, let's say, the realist school, uh, John Mearsheimer and others, that this war is at some level all our fault because uh, we went uh, too far with NATO enlargement and that uh, we perhaps inadvertently crossed a red line by raising the prospect of Ukraine and indeed Georgia becoming NATO members. And the more that we stuck to this idea, even though it seems we didn't really mean it, the higher the probability of uh, a war like this became. You're really now the authority on NATO enlargement. From this new vantage point, a very different one from the vantage point when you wrote the book, how do you think about this thesis that the war is a consequence of a fundamental overreach by the United States and its European allies? Yeah, uh, thank you for inviting me here. Great to be here. Great to see friends like Norman Neymark, who was uh, such a help in, in writing the book uh, to talk about these important issues. Yeah, the... Um, the Mearsheimer thesis, I've probably said this before in this forum, but the one phenomenon I've never observed as a historian is monocausality. Important events happen for multiple reasons. And even I, as someone who has studied NATO expansion now for many years, I do not see it as the prime cause of what is happening. I see the prime cause as what is happening as the mind of Vladimir Putin. 
Now, that being said, his grievances about NATO expansion obviously factor into his decision making. So uh, the book in particular, as you know, is not an anti-NATO expansion book. It, I actually think that NATO enlargement was neither unprecedented nor unreasonable. I think the problem was how it happened and that it happened in a way that contributed to maximum aggravation with Moscow. But it's important to understand that it happened in cumulative interaction with other events and tragic self-harming Russian choices. And particularly relevant here, indeed uh, frighteningly relevant, was Yeltsin's decision to invade Chechnya. At a time when there were debates about the structure of post-Cold War Europe and where there might be a birth in it for Russia or Ukraine, Yeltsin decided to launch a brutal invasion of Chechnya, as everyone here knows, ultimately turning in the Second Chechen War Grozny into what has been declared the most destroyed city on earth. And it is, it is, I can only use the word terrifying how much my military contacts are using the example of Grozny as what might be about to happen to various cities in Ukraine, given that Putin was largely the moving spirit behind the most brutal phase of that conflict and is obviously the moving phase now. So when Yeltsin decided to invade Chechnya, which even his own foreign minister, Kozirov, called a bad mistake, that really helped tip the balance toward drawing a new Article 5 line across Europe. And we're seeing the consequences of that now. President Clinton had initially, and I think wisely, of tried to avoid doing that because he realized, and he even said this at the time, which I, I found amazing, that peace in Europe depended on Ukraine. As he put it, Ukraine was the linchpin of, of security in Europe. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but the exact quotations are in my book, Not One Inch. And he, uh, as the Central Eastern Europeans, Poland and Hungary and so forth, pressed him saying, you know, let us into NATO, give us Article 5, which is the guarantee that an attack on one will be treated as an attack on all. Uh, he said, you know, if we do that, we're going to draw a new line. And this, this is President Clinton, Clinton speaking. Why should we draw a new line across Europe when we just got rid of the Cold War line? If we draw a new Article 5 line, we will leave all those post-Soviet states out in the cold, especially Ukraine. And we can't do that. And then even behind closed doors, he would say to the Poles, you of all people should appreciate what it feels like to be left on the wrong side of a line. We can't do that. We have to have options for Ukraine. So we need to blur that line. We need to bring countries into NATO gradually. And if we have this partnership for peace, which post-Soviet states can join, uh, we can blur that line by gradually letting states in. And it gives us options to manage contingency, right? It gives us options to give people you know, partial uh, NATO memberships. We can be vague about how much we're gonna defend them and that vagueness is gonna be useful. Wouldn't it be great to have those options again now? But because of Yeltsin's decision to invade Chechnya, the Central and East Europeans start pushing Clinton to draw that Article 5 line. Uh, he also looks at the results from the midterm congressional election of the Republicans in 1994, who supported Article 5 extension as soon as possible. Clinton realizes he needs those people if he's going to be reelected. Also, Ukrainians start to denuclearize. Ukraine had, of course, been born nuclear. And it becomes, uh, it denuclearizes for the Budapest Memorandum. And so for all these reasons, we in the West and Clinton in the West, we decide to draw that Article 5 line. There, I think things do become difficult because now it's, you know, you, you really don't have options to manage contingency. And then the tragic problem is this then feeds into the twisted mindset of Vladimir Putin and into his grievances and helps him to instrumentalize this history and to use it as a justification for, for the horrific things that he's doing now. Thanks, Mary. That gives me a, a chance to turn to Chris and talk some more about Vladimir Putin's mentality. Uh, there is now a quite common talking point in the US that he's lost his marbles and we're dealing here with uh, someone unhinged. Uh, Chris, you studied Putin and uh, I would love to get your take on how, uh, how crazy this all is or are we still dealing here with a rational if ruthless actor well i think to answer that question neil like we need to differentiate a bit the conduct of the war over the past uh, week and a half versus the war aims because i think the conduct of the war is 
uh, really hard to describe as closely tethered to political realities in Ukraine and Russia's ultimate political goals. If if you knew that uh, there was going to be substantial Ukrainian resistance, you would have structured your military operation differently. And the only reason that uh, the Russians didn't do that is because they were uh, confused by their own propaganda about Ukrainian weakness and division, um, and as a result, made errors in, in judgment uh, about about how to structure the military operation. But the the goals I think behind uh, the war we're seeing right now are are not at all um, unhinged or crazy. They're they're deeply built into uh, Russian foreign policy thinking, um, and there's a I think nothing that surprising in some ways, as Mary said, that uh, Ukraine is is the flashpoint where all of this is coming together because Putin, he's certainly accelerated his discussion of Ukraine over the past uh, 12 months or so following on his article um, in last from last June on the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people. But of course, Russia has been at war in Ukraine for almost a decade now. Um, and its influence operations in Ukraine in terms of trying to swing elections or um, trying to manage uh, different groups of oligarchs to achieve its political goals have been present for a very long time and are widely accepted and popular among uh, Russia's foreign policy elite. So I I think we'd be wrong to say this is all about Putin or all about one person becoming unhinged because you can draw pretty clear lines, not only to the early years of Putin time in power, but even back to the 1990s when there were lots of Russian politicians on the far right of the political spectrum who were espousing broadly similar aims. Now, we're historians and we're supposed to stick to the past according to the the traditional job description, but I'm going to push you both to do something that I frequently do to the great disgust of, uh, of many more conventional historians and think about what comes next. Uh, as Chris says, this has not gone according to Putin's plan. Uh, and we are now in a highly complex uh, situation in which five or six different things are happening. Uh, uh, and it's hard to, to really tell which will happen fastest. Uh, there's the, the war itself, and I think it's unclear how quickly, if at all, uh, Russia can declare victory and how pyrrhic any victory would be. There are the sanctions uh, and their impact on the Russian economy and how quickly that will bring Russia to its knees and whether quickly enough to influence the outcome of the war. Then there's the domestic situation in Russia. How secure is Putin? Has he uh, got to the, the Khrushchev zone where he's now behaved in such a reckless way that he's likely to fall victim to some kind of uh, palace uh, coup. Uh, there's uh, there's the wider question of uh, diplomatic uh, intervention. The Chinese have indicated some interest in playing the role of, uh, of ceasefire, if not peace uh, brokers. And maybe we should also bear in mind the great uh, but uh, ephemeral force of Western public opinion uh, which seems to have uh, a relatively short half-life if our outrage at the fall of Afghanistan is anything to go by. So, Mary, thinking about all these different things that are going on, as you say, in a non-monocausal historical process, give us your, I don't know, one, two, three scenarios as we try to think about how this uh, plays out. And uh, I guess we should also include in the mix the fact that Putin's shown himself ready to threaten to go nuclear, which has to be a a big part of this story. Right. Obviously, I don't have any monopoly on the future, so I actually would be interested in in your take on this, uh, Neil, and and some of the other people in the room as well. I uh, just have some speculation to offer, which of course, you know, ranges from more hopeful to more grim. Uh, on the um, more hopeful side, this may be too optimistic. Uh, my hope is that the strong men around Putin decide that they don't want to live in North Korea for the rest of their lives because Putin is increasingly turning Russia into North Korea. 
And so I think a, a, a good outcome, frankly, would be if they decide to move him aside. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about regime change. I don't think suddenly Russia would be, be a democracy again and it would all be, you know, wine and roses. But I do think that just as in some ways the, the, the anti-Semitic genocidal aspect of World War II was really tied to Hitler personally, uh, I think that a lot of what is happening is tied to Putin's personal grievances. And if he personally could be moved aside, that some of the bruta worst brutality that I fear is to come could be avoided. Also on the hopeful scenario would obviously be some kind of Russian popular uprising. I was heartened a tiny bit by the pictures out of actually Berlin last weekend where 100,000 people protested, basically marched in it to support of Ukraine. And if you saw the pictures, most of them had the Brandenburg Gate in the background, which is where, as you know, on November 9th, 1989, the power of the people overcame tyrants and dictators. And I thought, you know, you should be very wary of what you've started, Mr. Putin, because this might be what finally causes that in your home country. So those are more optimistic scenarios, although those would obviously be complicated and you know, not happy scenarios. Um, what is currently going on now, I've been thinking of as banks versus tanks. So we are basically trying to see how quickly we can bankrupt a country, basically Russia. And uh, we're hoping that Zelensky can hold out against the tanks while you do that. The hope is that this will cause, again, people inside the country to you know, the strong man to somehow stop what they're doing. I doubt very much Putin will stop, but perhaps if they see the degree to which we're going to bankrupt Russia, they will be able to uh, find the resolve they need to find. And so Zelensky basically needs to keep the country alive while that process is going on, since he's obviously not going to defeat Russia militarily. Uh, going down the scenario of more hopeful to more grim, uh, obviously in a war between Russia and Ukraine, Russia wins that war. But it's not clear to me that Russia wins the insurgency that follows, right? Russia has something like a little south of 200,000 troops. That's enough to wreck a country. That is not enough to rule a country. I was heartened to hear the uh, military analyst, Michael Kaufman, who if you're not following him on Twitter, you should be, uh, saying today that he actually thinks this whole operation is shot, not in military terms, but because there's just no way they're gonna be able to hold Ukraine with anything like the forces that they have, given the way Ukraine has rallied against it. So uh, I, th I think there is certainly an ugly insurgency coming. Getting to the more grim scenarios, some of the military folks I'm in touch with, looking at the equipment that's moving into place, they are seeing the assembling of a force package that could create Grozny level destruction. So in other words, you circle a city, um, if you're in a good mood, you give the civilians a window to get out and then you reduce the city to rubble. Um, so that is now within the realm of the possible. And then obviously now we're getting to the worst case scenarios. I was deeply worried about the, uh, the fact that the Russians were not careful enough to avoid live fire near a uh, nuclear plant. I, understand, I obviously realized it wasn't hit, but that's, that's a lot of risk. That's also a war crime. And um, the fact that Putin is talking about nuclear saber rattling is obviously very, very concerning. Now, for me, I think the big question, and this, again, I'd be appreciative of just discussing with the group here. I, I think we obviously need to be cognizant of the risks. And I just published a New York Times op-ed. Uh, and Chris had a New York Times op-ed. We've both been hounded by op-ed editors <laughs> for the past couple of weeks. Um, uh, I just published an op-ed on the potential risks of inadvertent ex escalation, which was the topic the New York Times wanted. But on the other hand, I don't think that can deter us. This is a real breaking point in modern history, and we need to find a way to make this violence stop. So the question is, what can we do that doesn't lead to nuclear war? And here, I really do think applying history works because there haven't been many examples of this, but we did have the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, as you know, from Graham Allison's work, uh, what eventually did it was a combination of three things, which Graham referred to as the magic cocktail. The first was a public deal, which is, uh, the public deal is if you take the missiles out, we won't invade. Then there was a, a private sweetener, which is don't talk about this in public, no quid pro quo, but we will take the Jupiter missiles out of Turkey. But there was also a private ultimatum, which is you need to get those out in 48 hours or we're gonna do something about it. 
In other words, you know, we call Khrushchev's bluff. And so the question is, at what point do we say something similar to Putin and say, you know, you need to stop this in 48 hours or we are going to send an A-10 warthogs and destroy that column of tanks or we are going to establish a no-fly zone. In other words, how do we take this to the brink without going over? And I think that is an immense challenge, one of the biggest we faced. And I think that his, actually historians are uniquely positioned to help answer that. I mean, I would say that, but I genuinely believe that. So I'd be interested in the thoughts of this group on those questions. I, I agree with you, Mary. I, I, I could tell you the number of uh, quite eminent people who've asked me about a no-fly zone in the last uh, eight or nine days has surprised me because that would so obviously be an act of war in the eyes uh, of Putin. And that is indeed why I think he he rattled the nuclear saber to make sure that that was quickly taken off the table. But it concerns me that we did, in fact, back down very quickly when he started to use that language. Uh, feels as if uh, we're forgetting some of the rules of the Cold War. Yes. Uh, and Actually, I, I can just jump in. The Secretary yeah. of Defense, Lloyd Austin, announced he was canceling a Minuteman test because he didn't want to. I'm like, why are we canceling it? Let's blow right. some things up. Absolutely. <laughs> this is like... To me, uh, as a student of the Cold War, really shocking. We are showing considerable weakness and, and in encouraging Putin to think that he can use this threat to compensate for his uh, rel relatively poor performance on on the ground. And and it is deterring us, I think, from from giving the Ukrainians the kind of assistance that might be meaningful. I was against the no-fly zone because I thought that was too escalatory, but I was in favor of. Uh, uh, making uh, making uh, uh, fighter jets uh, and, for that matter, drones available to the Ukrainians. Chris, uh, let let me turn to you now, and um, I'm going to start encouraging other participants to to start raising their hands and getting involved. Norman, I'm looking at you. I'll certainly want to call on you after some of your excellent comments in public on this subject. But let me give Chris one more uh, a crack at this. Uh, if you were not just writing op-eds, uh, but advising uh, President Biden, uh, what would you say? Jake Sullivan, I, I hear, has just been fired and Chris Miller has been appointed uh, uh, national security advisor after correctly forecasting the invasion and correctly calling just about every turn of events uh, this year. So you're suddenly in that situation room and the president turns to you and uh, and and you and you are put on the spot. What should we do? Well, the more I think about how the invasion is likely to keep playing out, the more it does seem really important which territory falls in the next couple of weeks, um, because it's clear the Russian advance is moving very slowly. Uh, it's clear that uh, as time passes, Ukraine will begin to find its capabilities in the conventional sense degraded, but it will also show more and more to the Russians how capable it is of imposing costs. Uh, over, as weeks pass, Russian losses are going to increase dramatically. Uh, and in the Federation Council today, uh, one Russian uh, senator publicly uh, began speaking about the losses that um, already are being faced. Now they're described as being in the interest of the special operation in the Donbass, but nevertheless, this is real. Their losses, not just among uh, contract soldiers, but also among draftees, and the economic losses at home are also escalating. So there's all these pressure points on the Russians that make a long war very unappetizing and perhaps even impossible uh, to wage, which makes the next couple of weeks, I think, pretty decisive. And right now, it's very unclear. Does Odessa get attacked in a serious manner or not? Does Kiev fall? Um, does Kharkiv fall? Because if these cities don't fall in the next uh, couple of weeks or maybe two months, it seems pretty plausible that uh, Russia at that point will be looking for some sort of ceasefire or deal uh, with Zelensky. And, and so I would be pushing to give the Ukrainians all the time that they, they have because uh, yes, they're going to lose the war in a conventional military sense, but how they lose and with what map they lose is still very much uh, open to question. And I think it's quite possible that we end up in a couple of months with Ukraine, maybe even still holding on to Kiev, uh, certainly holding on to Odessa is very possible. And half of Ukrainian territory, if not more, could well be in Ukraine's hands. It won't be pretty. It's going to be a brutal couple of weeks. Um, but I don't think Russia can sustain this at this level um, over a sustained period of time. Just one of the data point already, Russia has lost 3% of its tanks in nine days of war. So Map that out over a couple of weeks. 
a Ukrainian friend of mine said to me on the eve of the Russian invasion, uh, we'll be like the Mujahideen, uh, alluding to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And uh, he looks like being uh, vindicated, but by comparison with the military assistance that we gave uh, the Afghan Mujahideen, the assistance we're giving Ukraine is still uh, really rather modest. Uh, I did the math and it's a lot, lot less. Uh, I must confess, if I were in that uh, hot seat advising the president, I would be urging him to uh, maximize the assistance, particularly with respect to air defenses that, that we can give Zelensky to keep to keep the Ukrainian resistance going. Because I, I agree with your view that the, the more protracted this is, uh, the better the prospects that, that Putin is forced into some kind of, uh, of diplomatic compromise. Norman, uh, it's great to see you. I was reading a, an interview you did uh, earlier uh, today and agreeing with uh, your uh, remarks. You're someone who knows uh, this region well and knows that it has an almost unique track record for uh, lethal organized violence uh, over the last century. I, I remember when I was writing War of the World, reading some of your stuff and thinking, one of the great puzzles is why Ukraine, always Ukraine, why so many disastrous uh, events have played out there. Uh, give, me, give me your sense of, of how long the Ukrainians can hold out. Uh, what has been your reaction to the rather extraordinary spectacle of a, a former sitcom actor becoming a wartime, uh, a heroic wartime president? How long do you think Ukraine can hold out? And is it reasonable to draw parallels with Afghanistan in the 1980s? Um, uh, first of all, let me just say, uh, I, I think you asked the right questions, Neil. And I think our, our panelists gave, uh, you know, our thanks for inviting uh, Chris and, and Mary. They, I thought they gave excellent uh, answers. Um, you know, and one of the, I think one of the things I'd add before I turn to your questions, one of the things I really wanted to add, you know, is uh, implicit in your question about, uh, you know, how long they can hold out and also about Zelensky. You, you didn't mention also that he's Jewish, which is a sort of interest, a Jewish comedian, right, <laughs> who's, who's uh, now president of Ukraine. And you, and, and you get these wonderful, uh, you know, these wonderful little pieces of humor. As he speaks to us, you know, even with his beard and his T-shirt, you know, he still has this uh, marvelous sense of humor. Um, uh, I like the one, uh, especially where he said, "Don't give me a ride, give me guns." You know, I thought that was really fantastic. That, that's yeah. one for the history book, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so, a couple of things that I would say. First of all, um, uh, you know, we all uh, are in admiration of Ukraine and the Ukrainians and what they've done um, in this war. And, uh, and Chris is absolutely right. You know, the war started in 2014. I mean, it didn't start uh, just in this, with this invasion. I mean, they've, um, they've behaved extremely well. And the other thing that's happened, I mean, and it's important again, as historians, you know, we note this, that nations are made. They're not, uh, you know, they're not there, they're not, uh, you know, some kind of thing that exists in the abstract, they're constantly being made. And the Ukrainians, you know, especially over the, eight, the last eight years, you know, have created, you know, an extraordinary nation, one dedicated to, um, you know, um, principles of freedom and democracy, of uh, sovereignty uh, versus the Russians, you know, from Maidan, this revolution of dignity, which is an important event, really, not just in the history of Eastern Europe, but in the history, uh, you know, of the West, of the world, you could say, because this is, you know, like solidarity, like other moments like this, um, you know, it's an extremely important part of how we think about the development of democracy and liberty uh, in the world. So the Ukrainians have, have turned themselves, interestingly, uh, you know, into a fighting nation in which there seems to be almost no dissent whatsoever about how they, about this standing up to the Russians and how one stands up to the Russians. And even those Russians who live in Ukraine, with the exception of some in Donetsk and a few others, I'm sure, around, although we don't hear much 
reporting about them, but they're not going to be that many, are now Ukrainians, you know, and are, 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 are calling themselves Ukrainians, even if they speak Russian much better than they do Ukrainian. Um, and there are, you know, there are a lot of people like that. Um, and it's so it's a it's an incredible development. That's all uh, you know. I, I would would say about that. You know, Zelensky, also you know, who was a contested figure uh, in the uh, Ukrainian elections, won in some cases. You know, I mean, in some analyses, uh, you know, against all odds. Um, and there were you know plethora of candidates and a plethora of um, of uh, political parties, but he 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 won in part because of his notoriety and his television kind of uh, and past. Um, you know, has has uh, become this extraordinary leader, much as the Ukrainians themselves have become an extraordinary nation in some ways. So, you know, I'm, this is all very impressive, and it means I think. You know, and again, here, you know, we join all our colleagues in the difficulty of trying to, to predict what's going to happen. It means, I think, that this will be protracted. This is going to take a long time. I mean, I think Chris has that just right as well, that, um, uh, you know, this is not going to be easy. And even if somehow, you know, and given the preponderance of power, um, you know, this may be inevitable, I don't know. Um, you know, the Russians win the, the battle, as it were, for Ukraine in terms, of, um, in terms of the military battle and even being able to establish some kind of occupation regime. I've spent some time studying occupations too. And every, what everybody says is correct. It takes more than what they have now, uh, you know, to successfully occupy, uh, uh, you know, a country of over 40 million people. You know, um, it was one thing, as, as Mary knows very well, you know, to occupy Eastern Germany, 17 million people with, what, uh, you know, 170,000 Soviet uh, uh, troops. You know, they don't have that many to occupy this, to occupy Ukraine. 380,000, so, 380,000 Soviet yeah, troops. Well, 280,000, depends. It came and, go, it came and went. Um, uh, so... You know, it's going to be it's going to be extremely difficult for them, uh, you know, uh, to occupy the country. But let, let's assume they do. Ukraine has changed forever. They will not, um, you know, buckle under uh, an imperial um, uh, master in the way that, uh, you know, Putin hoped or hopes uh, they will. They're just not going to do it. And the result is, as you mentioned, Neil, um, I think I think there's going to be a lot of fighting before this is over. I mean, even once the occupation has begun, um, as I mentioned in that piece uh, that I sent you, the the um, you know Ukrainians fought well into the 50s, you know, against the re-Sovietization um, of Ukraine, especially in Western Ukraine. Um, you know, and a lot of those, that same tradition is there. And there's another tradition, by the way, that's sort of interesting, um, that the, the, the ministries, the Ministry of Defense and, the, um, and, um, and Zelensky's office is mentioning, which is the Cossack tradition. You know, and the Cossacks also didn't um, exactly fall over and uh, uh, were easily occupied you know, by the Russian Empire. I mean, they made a deal with the Russian Empire at one point uh, in the 17th century, but, you know, they, they also fought uh, uh, very hard and uh, continuously, and on, I mean, on and off, really, uh, against imperial domination. And that's part of the Ukrainian kind of national ethos, too. So there's a lot of reason to think that this will go on for a while. I mean, it's, people have talked about a potential frozen conflict future but that frozenness is going to, you know is is certainly going to be melted in a lot of places by resistance i think and um and uh, you know bloodshed which is uh, too bad so let me leave it at that i had a rather heated uh, discussion with our colleague uh, Frank Fukuyama uh, the other day, uh, in which he accused me of <clears throat> defeatism, 
because I was somewhat bleak in my assessment of the Ukrainians' prospects. I'm beginning to wonder if he might be right, though, because uh, the more I think about this, the combination of pretty poor performance in the field and uh, far, far more severe sanctions than Putin foresaw makes me wonder if we might be surprised by how quickly he starts to seek uh, some diplomatic off-ramp before his situation becomes absolutely parlous. Uh, I, I'm beginning to question my own uh, pessimism uh, the more I hear about the military situation on the ground. But I want to I want to step back and take a global uh, view now. I can't uh, resist uh, uh, welcoming uh, the great Mel Leffler uh, to this uh, group uh, and as one of the uh, preeminent historians of the Cold War. Uh, I can't think of anyone better to give us a global perspective on this, uh, if you don't mind me cold calling you, Mel. My, my sense is that we can't view this too narrowly, that we must recognize that this is part of a, a global strategic problem that the United States confronts. And China's role is extraordinarily important here. My sense is that this would never have gone ahead without uh, Xi Jinping's blessing, uh, that it was time to happen after the Beijing Olympics for a reason, uh, and that China's really Putin's only hope at this point uh, to keep uh, the economy from complete implosion. Uh, and of course, uh, from an uh, Asian vantage point, the question is, is Taiwan next? So I don't know if you buy my now well-established argument that we're in Cold War II, we just don't want to face it, Mel. I suspect you probably don't. Uh, but, but tell me how you think about this, at least uh, in a global framework. I think that would help us all. Well, I, I appreciate your, your talking to me. I need, I need to um, preface my remarks by saying that uh, I'm in Toronto taking care of my five-year-old granddaughter. So um, uh, I'm not likely to be, to be on this very much, very much longer. And, but I much appreciate uh, the discussion that's gone on. I really think that it's, it's been excellent. Um, yeah, I, I would just comment um, by very much supporting the notion that, that uh, for the United States at least, it's really imperative to think of this in global terms. And I think that the most um, compelling factor to ensure that Putin does not succeed um, except at very, very, very great cost, is that I do think that the Chinese are watching this carefully with regard to uh, Taiwan. And um, I think that that should be a major preoccupation and, and focal point. Um, so, it, so I think in, in that perspective, um, it's very important. Um, in both situations, I think um, what I would learn from the Cold War is a question, uh, and that is, um, I think it's imperative for policymakers, both with regard to Ukraine and with regard to Taiwan, to, to think deeply about what constitutes a vital interest um, justifying the prospect uh, of, of, wage, of waging war. And um, I think uh, that um, uh, the answer to that, to that question is, is a very complicated one in which reasonable people uh, will disagree. Um, but before people start arguing as um, occasionally I hear and implying that the United States should, in fact, take stronger actions in Ukraine, for example. Um, uh, one does need to think about uh, to what extent is Ukraine really a vital interest uh, to the United States, um, justifying the risk of an escalatory cycle leading to uh, a, glo a global war. Um, in, in that context, um, I would say that I think that uh, President Biden 
has handled um, this situation uh, pretty adroitly so far. I'm not sure if in retrospect, if I would have said in a declaratory sense um, that we would never enter Ukraine or never uh, engage in military action in Ukraine. I think that's the right policy, um, but I don't necessarily think that it should have been a declaratory policy in advance and uh, certainly undermined um, what might, might have been some marginal de deterrent uh, impact. Um, but I do, I do think um, that the, the thrust of what American policy should be right now, um, if you would ask me what you asked Chris, and Chris I think gave a very good answer about if he were uh, Jake Sullivan, what he, would, what he would be arguing, I would be saying that the United States um, should be doing everything it can to prepare to support a long insurrection uh, in conjunction uh, with its allies. What I would learn from the Cold War is how imperative it is um, to keep a cohesive alliance together, um, to preserve allied cohesion, um, to make certain your allies are with you um, in supporting uh, this venture. And I think that uh, given the complexities of European politics that Biden has done a pretty good job. I think he needs to sustain it. I'm amazed um, actually by some of the support that numerous Euro European countries um, are providing. Um, I am of the opinion, Neil, different from what you said a few minutes ago, that, um, that we are offering far more aid to Ukraine that we offered to the Mujahideen. Um, I don't know how you measure that, um, but uh, in terms of um, the amount of um, economic and military supplies, I would say that it far exceeded. Um, I think what you need to provide uh, Ukraine requires um, a commitment of aid uh, and support far in excess than, than what we provided the Mujahideen. But I think that has been forthcoming. And I think we have probably uh, encouraged our allies and, um, and, and an, an amazing amount of support from countries that I would not have thought would make commitments like Sweden and Switzerland. Um, so, um, you know, uh, I think um, thinking globally and preserving allied cohesion and, um, uh, and readying to support a, uh, a long insurrection are critical. I would also say one other thing from the, from the Cold War, and that is how imperative it is, even while pursuing a tough, tough containment policy, it's also extraordinarily important to engage and to be ready to engage in diplomacy and to pick up on overtures and maybe even to make appropriate over overtures um, to try to um, uh, ratchet, ratchet down the incredible strife that's, that's going on. So I've spoken long enough. Thanks, thanks for asking me. Thanks so much, Mel, and uh, have fun with the, the grandchild. Uh, uh, I. Uh... I think this uh, this puts me in mind of uh, of 1973 when the U.S. simultaneously armed the Israelis and then initiated the the ceasefire and, and peace negotiations. I worry a little bit that we might be letting the Chinese take the initiative when it comes to uh, brokering peace. And I want to take advantage of the fact that we have Aaron and Brett Carter on as uh, uh, people who think a lot about uh, China. Uh, Aaron. Um, I'm trying to get a sense of just how Xi Jinping and indeed the Chinese uh, people think about all this. Uh, my my sense is that he gave a green light. Uh, the the Chinese foreign ministry is trying to kind of have it both ways and uh, blows hot and cold depending on who's the audience. But tell tell us a bit about how this is uh, is being thought of in in China and whether I'm right that there is a sort of possibility here for the Chinese to be the, the ceasefire brokers. 
Thank you. Um, yeah, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, thank you all for these really illuminating thoughts. Um, so I think I think one way to look at this issue is to draw a contrast. I think we're really seeing a point at which the Chinese foreign policy has really changed. Um, so in, in Hank Paulson's memoirs, which are wonderful, just absolutely engaging if you hadn't had a chance to read them, um, there's this wonderful anecdote about how uh, right after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, uh, Moscow called Beijing and proposed to both work together to sell U.S. Treasury bonds and in so doing deep in the American recession. Um, and what Paulson recounts is that at the time, uh, Beijing you know, declined the offer, um, said no thanks and called Washington and said, um, this, you know, I just want you to know, Moscow made us this offer, we declined. Um, and I think that was a really interesting story about how Beijing at the time was very much invested um, in um, sort of, you know, some aspects of the global liberal order, or at least, you know, the economic benefits that it was receiving from it. Um, I think a really interesting contrast is a story that appeared in the New York Times earlier this week by Ed Wong, that was an absolute bombshell, which documented how um, the United States had spent months pressuring China to go represent to Russia and try to pressure Russia to not invade Ukraine. Um, Beijing obviously punted on that um, and evidence shows actually shared the intelligence the US was giving to China with Russia to say like, we know we know about this troop buildup. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting signal about how China's stance towards trying to maintain um, the, the sort of global liberal orders really pivoted to supporting Russia's um, efforts to um, really dismantle something into a more traditionally um, sort of um, adversarial system. Now, I think that there are two other aspects that bear mentioning. One is that uh, what China, I think you, you put it exactly right with foreign ministry trying to have it both ways in many ways. Um, but I think that what you can see with China doing domestically and its messaging about the conflict is very revelatory. So in particular on social media, um, there's been a huge amount of astroturfing where the CCP is using its 50 cent army um, to boost what Russia is doing, to sort of praise the Russian uh, military operations, to not call an invasion, um, and to really place as much blame as possible on the United States. Um, so I think that that effort to frame this uh, military operation as legitimate to the Chinese people um, is something that's really noteworthy. And second, I think that there is a big connection with something else that's going on at Hoover today. There's the launch of the digital currency report about China's efforts to build a digital currency. There are a lot of meetings about that earlier this morning. Um, and I think that there's been a lot of discussion in the press over the last two or three days about how, you know, China perhaps should be praised for um, sort of, you know, signing on and complying with swift sanctions against Russia. Um, I think we have to be really careful in interpreting that as a signal of the CCP's commitment um, to being sort of a responsible stakeholder in the international system uh, because you know in recent years the CCP has had, had a very interesting strategy of in, um, allowing specific banks to engage in trade and financing of North Korea. Um, but when that was sort of found out by the international community, the CCP just said, we didn't know anything about that. Um, so I think that there, there are ways that the CCP could easily find to support um, Russia's activities while sort of having the image of complying and sort of being a positive, positive role in this conflict internationally. Um, so that, that would be my interpretation. Thank, thanks, Aaron, that, that's, uh, that's really helpful. No, nobody's been raising a hand, so I've just been uh, moderating my way through this by means of a cold call. But I'm glad to see that Brett uh, has <laughs> uh, has has just broken the ranks and raised his hand. I'm going to go to you, and then if uh, if we have time, and remember we're down to eight minutes now, I'd like to get Tyler Goodspeed to give us some insight into the economic consequences of the war, uh, which I think will have a huge bearing on uh, on just how long it lasts. Uh, but, but Brett. Yeah, of course. Um, and thanks uh, so much um, to you, Neil, and, and to our other colleagues for organizing um, what's been a really fascinating session. And of course, to Mary and to Chris um, for joining us. So I, I'd like to take um, Neil's invitation uh, seriously. So my question um, was um, to Mary Sorati. There was something that she said earlier um, that I thought was was very fascinating, but also which the, but also that struck me as um, uh, puzzling in a way. So so Mary Swati mentioned that um, in, in thinking about the prospects for you know, some kind of uh, domestic change engineered by um, uh, Putin's kind of inner circle, <clears throat> she suggested that you know it was probably the case that most. Um, Kind of regime insiders didn't want to live in North Korea. 
But, uh, you know, I, it seems to me that maybe the better analogy is living in Xi Jinping's China or perhaps even um, Hu Jintao's China. So I was curious, um, you know, why she uh, went for the North Korea analogy rather than the China analogy. And um, if indeed the China analogy is more appropriate, um, to what extent she thought that um, Putin's kind of ruling elite would actually be quite happy to live um, in perhaps maybe not Xi's, you know, China, but certainly Hu's China. And then kind of, you know, what, what, what that kind of portends for prospects um, for some kind of uh, domestic uh, change of government. Yeah, the, uh, obviously that's, a, uh, I mean, obviously it's an exaggeration for effect, but, uh, you know, the world hasn't cut off China's central bank. So I think we're headed, I mean, that is a nuclear option, right? I mean, you know, central banks are supposed to be sacrosanct, like, like embassies. Uh, and we're, I think, rapidly heading to a point where we're not going to let Russia earn money from its natural resources. We're not anywhere near that with China. I, I do think we're heading I don't know if we'll get there, but I think the, the, the I mean, the sanctions have moved through rap, rapidly through various phases, right? The sanctions first were meant to deter, which they didn't do. And then they were meant to punish, which they did to some extent, but now they're meant to bankrupt, right? We are trying to destroy Russia's economy. I don't see us destroying China's economy, although I'd be interested to talk to Neil about that. I actually would, I actually would be interested to hear from Neil what you think will happen if, if China tries to invade Taiwan. This is obviously a situation I know much less well than the European situation. So I do think that the, the parallel is more North Korea than China. And that, and also that, you know, you, you, you can fly to China, right? I mean, we've, and we, everywhere that counts is now closed airspace. Uh, you know, they're going to cut off trains. They're going to cut off border crossings. I mean, people are fleeing Moscow now, right? It's now gotten to the phase in Moscow. You know, my Moscow friends are texting each other saying, are you still here? Right? Every time Putin announces a speech, they think it's going to be the speech that declares martial law. Uh, so I, I, I think that the end state is more North Korea than China. And then the question is, you know, do you want to live somewhere that is so cut. And now you can't access Facebook. Now, I mean, what's, I saw this list today on Twitter. I didn't even know if it was accurate, but even if it was only partially accurate, the list of companies that are no longer doing business in China is, is immense. They're not going to supply aircraft parts, right? I mean, <laughs> are you going to want to even get on a plane? Right? Is China even get on a plane? So I, I'd be interested in, Neil, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, the North Korean analogy is a little misleading just because ideologically, this is not some rehashed Soviet Union. Uh, people sometimes forget if they haven't gone to Russia that Russia is radically different from the Soviet Union today. True, the ideology is different. It's a nationalist, conservative, orthodox uh, regime with uh, you know a, a curious oligarchical uh, kleptocratic uh, elite with Putin at its center. But I think you're right in saying that the economics uh, take Russia back many decades very fast. And uh, Russia, which uh, in the period uh, after the 90s became highly integrated in the world economy, has suddenly been cut out of it as quickly as, as Germany was cut off from uh, uh, overseas trade in 1914. Uh, and I do actually think that, that we haven't seen sanctions of, of this nature. Uh, since the time of, of the world wars. We're almost out of time, but let me uh, cheat by passing the buck to Tyler Goodspeed uh, to get a quick read from one of the world's most gifted economic historians on the economic consequences of the war. And if you can squeeze that into two minutes, we can get a last word from our, our panelist, Chris Miller, and then I'm afraid we're gonna be out of time. Tyler. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief, I guess. Uh, first, I, I, I struggle to see how Russia avoids complete autarky simply because of the, the, the nature of the sanctions. If, if, I'm a, if I'm a Russian importer, how the heck am I going to be getting, getting my hands on dollars and euros with which uh, to, to, to pay uh, foreign exporters? And, yet, and, and I don't see them being able to get around via Bitcoin or whatever else. 
And then in terms of the, 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 the domestic U.S. implications, look, we're not as reliant upon, either. well, first of all, I mean, the United States doesn't import much oil directly from Russia. Uh, generally speaking, we're not nearly as dependent on, on imported oil as, as Western Europe. But nonetheless, even though this isn't the same regime as, as in the 1970s, we do still have a, an elasticity of U.S. output with respect to the global price of oil of uh, about negative 0.2%, uh, which means a persistent exogenous shock to the global price of oil of, of 10% is going to shave uh, two-tenths of a percent off U.S. output. Uh, and if we're looking at a, a, a bigger and more persistent shock than, than 10%, then you know, scale that up accordingly. And then finally, I mean, just if I'm a private economic actor and I'm looking at the rapidity with which uh, severance of an economy from the global economy can proceed, I'm wondering about a real acceleration of, of trends already underway, even before COVID, in terms of reshoring or nearshoring from China. So in a January 2020 survey uh, by Bank of America of 3,000 multinational firms with $67 trillion in market capitalization, uh, that survey found that 80% of firms in 12 sectors with global supply chains expected to shift at least a portion of their supply chains from current locations uh, and a, 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 a UBS survey two months later uh, said the uh, survey respondents said that they were uh, chief, chief financial officers uh, of multinational enterprises in the U.S., North Asia, and China suggested that 20 to 30 percent of their production capacity uh, would be relocated from China, uh, most of it going to the U.S., Canada, Japan, or Mexico, uh, were the leading candidates among relocation. So, I mean, does this accelerate some of the deglobalization trends that were already underway, not only before Russia, but before, before COVID? Well, one thing's for sure, Tyler, if, if any part of the world can do autarky, it's the vast Eurasian landmass that extends uh, from Western Russia to China. Uh, uh, we are, alas, out of time, but I want to give uh, Chris the last word uh, uh, as uh, as we began with uh, Mary and, and Chris, and Chris hasn't had a, a chance to wrap this up. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, let me uh, uh, hand the, the, the last word to you. It, it strikes me that uh, the hardest thing about applying history uh, is uh, that the unexpected uh, can come along uh, and uh, do what the fall of the Berlin Wall did in 1989. Mary's written, of course, about that. And I'm sitting here wondering if if some comparable event uh, is going to surprise us, because it will turn out that in fact Putin's military and political power were in were less than we thought. Uh, if if one thing would surprisingly unsurprise me, it would be that he folds faster than just about everyone in this call expects. Can you give me a probability on that scenario ex ante? Well, I, I will say, Neil, that I've been personally struck by all of my contacts in Moscow, who two weeks ago I would have put in the pro-government camp, now posting on Facebook in the final minutes before it's finally banned from Russia, their opposition to the war, uh, which I, I think puts the Russian government in a complicated position because one of the challenges of protests and coups is that it's dangerous to move first. But if you already know that all of your Facebook friends and their final Facebook posts were uh, stating the opposition to the war, that makes protests and coups both a lot easier. Uh, so I, I think you're right that there's a lot more domestic pressure than, uh, than his repressive apparatus might suggest. Lots of non-linearity in, in history and, uh... And I'm not going to call call it a black swan. My sense is precisely that we as historians should be ready for the abrupt discontinuity that most people didn't see coming. Remember, most people didn't think this invasion would happen. And, and uh, you, Chris, were one of the people who predicted with high confidence that it, it would. Well, uh, thank you so much to everybody for joining uh, this call. I think it's always worth our while as historians uh, sitting down and comparing notes uh, between bouts of zooming 
with the media or for that matter with uh, folks in government uh, who, uh, who, who, who want to pick our brains. Uh, it was mentioned to me the other day by an eminent nonagenarian that uh, there was a kind of strange lack of historical perspective in much of the discussion uh, going on in, in government about this crisis. Uh, my strong conviction is and has been for many years that uh, the people in government need to think much more uh, historically than they do. And turning around when the crisis has begun and asking for a quick briefing on the history of Ukraine is not really the way to do this. Thank you to Mary Sorotti. Uh, thank you to Chris Miller. Uh, thank you to everybody who joined and uh, didn't mind being cold, cold. Uh, I hope this thing is over soon. Uh, it wouldn't certainly be in keeping with Ukraine's tradition if it, it was to end soon with minimal casualties. I think that would be a breakthrough in Ukraine's history. But who knows, perhaps this time finally will be different from for that poor, uh, that poor country. Uh, anybody who is able to watch this, who is Ukrainian or uh, is close to Ukraine, I hope it's been of some value uh, to provide some context for this latest disaster in Ukraine's history. With that, I'll wrap things up and look forward to seeing you uh, at our next Applied History meeting of the Hoover History Working Group. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>